You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Okay, if everyone wants to find their seats. Yeah, I know. Such energetic conversations. I hate to break these up. As as you're on your way back, if you want to grab a Bible, open to John chapter 12, verses 23 through 33 is where we'll be. So John 12, 23 through 33. It's on page 899 of the hardback black Bibles. If you're using one of those, there's there's some more on the back table if you want. So feel free to grab one if you'd like one. John 12, 23 through 33. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. So feel free to take this home with you as well. We're going to continue our Advent series today, which we have called, For This Reason I Have Come. And we're in the Gospel of John, and seven different times, Jesus uses this exact phrase, or a similar phrase, for this reason I have come. And throughout the four Sundays of Advent, we're going to look at one of those phrases, those sayings, each of the four Sundays. We can often look to Christmas as people, we we look to it to do all sorts of different things in our lives. Uh, And we're kind of asking ourselves, what if in all the busyness and all the parties and all the trips to the mall, or if you're an online shopper, all the packages that arrive at your door, what if in all of that, we miss the reason that Jesus came? And therefore, we miss the reason we celebrate Christmas to begin with. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, uh, but according to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, 64% of people report being affected by what is called holiday depression. And it's most often triggered by the financial and relational and emotional stress of the holidays. And we eat more and we sleep less. We spend more and we pray less. And in the midst of a holiday that is meant to help us focus our mind more on Jesus, we can often get through it and find that we feel further from him. And here's what I know, because I know it about myself, we're all gonna feel the busyness of this season. It's kind of hard to avoid that fully. We're all gonna feel the emotional letdown when it's over. But what if throughout Advent, we're able to focus our minds a little more clearly on why Jesus came? And as a result, Christmas leads to more worship and more joy than it does sorrow and sadness. When what we'll see in our passage today is that Jesus came, when he came at his birth, he had his end in mind. One of the reasons Jesus came was so that he could die. And so if you're in John 12, verses 23 through 33, I'll read it and you can follow along. The words will appear on the screen behind me as well. It says, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servants be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered, 
Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift it is to us as your people here at Advent as we try to see what what the purpose is for Jesus' coming and understand that and set our minds and fix them on the right sorts of things. Would you help us do that? We know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will last forever. And so as we open it together, would you help us? We're asking for your help by your spirit. Would you open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things that are found here in your word? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Domingo and Irene Garcia are remarkable examples of what we just read about, dying to self and the fruit that is produced as a result. Over the course of their marriage, they have birthed, fostered, or adopted 32 different children. Megan and I, we have four kids, and that feels like a lot some days. So I cannot imagine the sacrifice required to raise 32 kids. And if you've ever had to care for someone, whether it be a child or a spouse or a parent, you know the kind of work that's required. It will require a continual death to ourselves. Getting up in the middle of the night for a sick child, using PTO to bring parents or spouses to the doctor. And the Garcias have done this with 32 kids. They're a remarkable example. Through great sacrifice to themselves, they have provided a home to many kids who would otherwise not know what it means to have a home. And in a video highlighting their story, Domingo shares this. He says, if you want to see miracles, just take in about a half a dozen kids and you'll have a front row seat and watch God work. And if you'll just follow his plan, he will do it over and over and over. And meanwhile, your faith is growing and growing and growing stronger. And he ends by saying, it's a great place to be. What a simple statement, but also remarkably profound. If we're willing to sacrifice ourselves for others, we can watch God do miracles and he'll show up again and again and our faith will grow stronger and stronger. And here in Advent, as we reflect on why Jesus came, what we're going to see is that death produces fruit. Jesus came to die and his death produces life in us. And so really the message of the sermon as we think about the example of the Garcias and the life of Jesus is that the paradigm of the Christian life follows the pattern of Jesus's fruit producing death. Here's our outline today. First, Jesus gives us the paradigm. Second, Jesus experiences the problem. And third, Jesus makes it possible. So first, Jesus gives the paradigm. Our passage today comes in the last week of Jesus' earthly life, and his sacrificial death, it was looming. It was coming soon, and he knew that it was on the horizon, which is what he's talking about there in verse 23, when he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's referring to his death, the glory that was going to come in his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection. And then he gives them this short illustration about a grain of wheat to help them understand what's happening in verse 24. And he says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
And this is how seeds work. They produce fruit. But in order for that to happen, they need to die and be placed into the ground. And if not, it will just remain a seed, alone and without purpose. In order for a seed to accomplish its natural purpose, to bear fruit, it needs to do something unnatural. It needs to die. And this is the pattern of creation. From death comes life. Seeds die and produce next year's crop. The nutrients needed for life often come from the death of another living thing, compost for gardens or food for humans. This pattern is everywhere in creation. It's like baked into the way God made the world. Jesus uses this illustration to give a picture of what he's going to do for humanity. He is the seed that is going to die, and we are the fruit that will be produced. And so here we see the pattern in the life of Jesus that then becomes the paradigm for the Christian life. And there are four parts to this pattern. I'm going to sometimes use a shorthand of just saying death to life sort of paradigm, but there's four parts to this paradigm. And we see them in the life of Jesus, death to life to fruit to glory. All of them are there. He is the seed that is going to die. He will live again and create life in us. We will be the fruit that is produced and it will result in his glory. And then Jesus immediately includes his followers in the paradigm. He's saying, you watch me do this and now you're going to do it too. Verse 25, he says that if you love your life, you're going to lose it. But if you hate your life, then you will keep it for eternity. Now, hating our life doesn't mean being curmudgeon and like hating our life. Jesus is using this hyperbolic language to highlight the contrast. Hating our life here means that we value God's kingdom so much, so much more than this temporal life that we are willing to die to certain aspects of this life, even die. It's like entirely, physically die in order to gain the kingdom. And the paradigm then we get from Jesus is that our willingness to die to self will result in life and produce fruit in others. In verse 26, Jesus then continues to reinforce the point with his followers. He's saying, your life's going to mirror mine. And he ends this by saying that if we do, God will honor us. Now, the words glory and honor don't mean the exact same thing, but they're adjacent to one another, if you will. If we follow Jesus' paradigm, then God will bestow respect and value to us. He will honor us. And so this is the paradigm of the kingdom. Death, life, fruit, glory. But this isn't natural for us to want to die to ourselves. It isn't natural for the culture around us to want to die to ourselves. Rachel Jankovic, who is an author and a mother, applied John 12 to motherhood in this way. And it's a little bit of a long quote, but I think it's worth reading all of it. She says, I remember the first time I was pregnant, feeling like my body was being taken over, like I had no control over it, and like I wasn't sure I knew what I was getting into. Those feelings were just the shallow end of motherhood. You see things that are being taken away from you, and the flesh wants to grab hold of those things and refuse to let go. My body, my time, my hobbies, my sleep, my peace and quiet, my career, my plans. And she goes on, but there is another way. You can meet every opportunity to be changed with open hands. Your body, Lord, use it as you will. Your life, Lord, let me live it to you. This is radically countercultural, she says, which should be an encouragement. One thing our worldly culture has not produced is joyful, fruitful, peaceful, loving, sacrificial, fulfilled mothers. Why would we ask them how to deal with the realities of sacrifice? They don't know. The Christian life is a death and resurrection faith. 
We who know Jesus must never fear those little deaths that are required of us. We die in Christ, but we also live in him. Will it be hard? Of course it will. Will it be good? Yes, yes, yes. Put your life, all of it, in every detail before God freely. Stop clutching at all the things you don't want to lose and recognize that those things that are planted in faith grow in faith. They will be fruitful in ways far beyond your own ideas. Trust God. Open your hands. Her application of this death to resurrection faith is insightful and it is masterful. And it can be applied in similar ways to all sorts of domains of life. It can be applied, for example, in how we conduct ourselves in business. If you are responsible for others in your work, then you can ask yourself, are you dying to yourself so that fruit is produced in those whom you lead? Or you might ask this about the way that you love your neighbors or in the way that you serve your community. The pattern Jesus gives is a death to resurrection faith. Death, life, fruit, glory. But it is not always easy. And so we come to our second point. Jesus experiences the problem. Even if we embrace that this is the paradigm, death to life, that doesn't ignore the fact that the sort of death that actually leads to life is still hard to endure. That's what we hear in the words of Jesus in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. Jesus endures the cross willingly, but that doesn't mean it was painless. Jesus was not a stoic. He was not unmoved in the face of death or unemotional. His soul was troubled. He experienced the problem, the difficulty of dying to self. This is something that we would do well to remember, that Jesus experienced the sort of pain that we experienced. Because if one of the things, or the, one of the things that makes Christianity unique among all religions in the world is that our God experienced the brokenness of the world along with us. John Stott once wrote, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? Death to self is hard. The pain of suffering in this world is real. And we worship a God who experienced it with us. The reason that dying to self is so hard is because we have an instinct for our own preservation. Inevitably, the need of others will require us to sacrifice our own needs at times. I mentioned Domingo and Irene earlier, their sacrifice for their 32 different kids over the past four decades. And their story is incredible, and it can seem easy when it's summarized in just a few hundred words like I did earlier, but it has been hard at times. In a talk that they gave at the Christian Alliance for Orphans, Irene shared about the challenges, and she said, I'm going to be honest here. There have been many times I've wanted to quit. I've hated the job at times. It was so overwhelming, I felt like I was not going to make it. And I would go to my God and I would plead, Lord, I can't do this anymore. I can't. My plate is full. She then went on to share how God would take her through those difficult times, and it was often on the other side of them that she found the most sweet moments. I'm not going to paint a picture for you that the pattern of Jesus is easy for us. It's not easy. And even though the fruit on the other side is glorious, the death is still difficult. And so Jesus, he came for this hour. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled. He goes on to ask, he says, what shall I say then? Father, save me from this hour? 
No, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus is troubled. He's contemplating out loud. He's sharing his prayers. He's saying, Father, are you going to save me from this hour? And in verse 27, we get the phrase that we've been isolating throughout this Advent series. For this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus saw beyond his death to the resurrection. He knew the pattern of redemption, the life that life requires death. And it was his death that was going to be needed. And in Jesus' own prayerful reflections on what was about to be required of him, we see how he could endure the cross because he knew that it would produce the fruit of glory. And so in verse 28, he prays, Father, glorify your name. And we get this response, I have and I will. In saying, I have glorified my name, God is referring to the birth of Jesus, the life and teachings of Jesus, the miracles and his authority. And in saying, I, ha- I, I will glorify my name, this is in reference to the impending cross and resurrection. The death that Jesus was about to die would not be died in vain. He could trust that like a seed, his death would lead to life. It would bear fruit and the result would be glory and praise. I can only imagine Jesus in the human parts of him as he breathed his last breath on the cross, as his eyes dimmed, as he trusted that God would bring life and fruit and glory out of that death. Here in Advent, as we prepare ourselves to celebrate the birth of Jesus, we're being reminded that his miraculous birth led to his sacrificial death. The paradigm of the Christian life follows the pattern of Jesus' fruit-producing death, and we are going to endure this with difficulty as well as we die to ourselves. If we're going to do that, we need to trust that God will bring life and fruit out of it. I think that the hard part is that we don't always know what fruit will come. We don't always know when it will come. It sometimes takes a long time to see the fruit of our sacrifice, especially when the fruit is in the life of another person. Because people are messy, they're stubborn, we're challenging. But seeing the fruit of a changed life is glorious and it is beautiful and it takes time. If there is someone you have been dying to self for, then don't give up on them. Whether a child or a neighbor or a spouse or a friend, fruit takes time to produce. I remember when I was young and my dad planted this these three rows of evergreen trees in the kind of front corner of our yard. He, he wanted to create a barrier between this busy road that we were on and our yard. And so we put them in the ground. They were just little seedlings. We planted each one with care. We watered them in their early days. My brothers and I were careful when we mowed around them, trying not to hit them. Weren't always successful. We did our best. My dad planted them with this vision of creating a barrier between this busy road and our yard. Give us some privacy. Throughout high school, they continued to grow. By the time I left for college, this dream, this goal still was not realized. I was still almost taller than them. Today, my dad still owns the house I grew up in, and now these trees are 20 and 30 feet tall. They've become this natural hedgerow that he wanted. But it took 30 years. Seeds were placed into the soil over three decades ago. My dad planted them in our yard with this vision in mind. It took time, sweat, and effort to see the fruit of these labors. And it required my dad to have a vision and the patience to see that fruit produced. As we seek to live out a death to life to fruit to glory paradigm, 
that is the mark of God's kingdom, then it will require patience. We'll have to admit that it will be hard at times. Our souls will be troubled at times when our death-to-life moments are looming, and it will require us to be patient and trust God, to bring the fruit and the glory that our death will eventually produce. And thankfully, in light of the challenges, we're not alone in this work because Jesus provides the solution. This would be impossible if we had to forge our own path, if we had to do this all on our own. But the paradigm for life in God's kingdom was already lived before us, already lived through Jesus. Jesus is the seed that brings life and produces fruit, and we follow this pattern in our lives. So when the crowds hear the voice of God in verse 28, they respond with a bit of confusion in verse 29. Some hear God's words, some thought it was just thunder, others maybe a voice of angels. And Jesus explains that this voice was for their benefit. See, he was confident that God was going to do what he said he was going to do, but the crowds needed the reassurance. And then Jesus explains with a little more clarity what was about to happen. The time has come for the judgment of the world, he says in verse 31. And the ruler of this world was going to be cast out. This here is a reference to the devil, his ability to deceive and to lie, to rule over the world. It was about to be shattered. The decisive blow was about to be dealt. And when we think about trying to live this death-to-life paradigm, it's essential to know that Satan has been defeated. The evil one who has spoken lies since the garden has been conquered. The serpent told Adam and Eve the very opposite of the paradigm, that it wasn't death to life. They didn't need to submit to God's design. They could pursue their own desires. And Jesus comes to correct the lie, to conquer the evil one, to free us from the curse of Satan, death, and sin. Because in his own death, Jesus undoes the tyranny of death. And what was once a great enemy for humanity now becomes a source of life and fruit for us. In verse 32, then, Jesus explains that he will be lifted up and he will draw all people to himself. Jesus on the cross would become like a magnet, drawing people to himself, drawing our attention to himself. It is in our focus on the cross and the freedom that we get from the death of Christ that makes it possible for us to live this death-to-life paradigm that we've been talking about. Because when you hear a sermon about dying to self— about seeking the good of others, about submitting to God's design, even at great cost to ourselves, I could try to motivate you in one of two ways. I could give you duty or I could give you beauty. And we as people have been trying to motivate each other out of duty for the ages. If I can make you feel guilty enough or inspired enough, maybe you'd be willing to die to yourself. Then maybe you'd try to do it out of duty for a while but you would inevitably fail because guilt and duty won't last, but beauty will. Harvard professor Elaine Scarry argues in her book on beauty and being just that duty will not get us to be just people, but beauty will. And I think her book is instructive for us here because being just and dying to self are related. If we want to make a more, or the world a more just place, then it will require us to die to our own advantages at times. It will require us to plunge our own resources into the fabric of society. And if we do that, if we die to ourselves in this way, then life and fruit will come. But according to Elaine Scarry, we don't do that simply out of duty. Guilt is a temporary motivation. And it is inherently self-serving. But beauty will last. 
And I've experienced this in my own life. I have just a small illustration of this. When I was in high school, I was in a world literature class, and I didn't particularly enjoy the books that we read. But I read them anyway, and I wrote the papers, and I got my A. Why? Well, out of duty. I wanted a good grade because I knew that if I got a good grade, it would earn the approval of my parents. It would help me to get into a good university so that I could get a degree, so that I could get a job. So I read classic works of literature in order to make money out of duty, and I did not enjoy it. A few years later, though, I spent the summer in China, and I brought with Jane Austen's book, Pride and Prejudice. I had not liked it in my world lit class, but someone encouraged me to give it another try. And so as I read the book, I came to appreciate it. The characters are interesting. The story's compelling. The writing is beautiful. So in high school, I read the book out of duty so I could earn the good opinion of others and earn an income. I did it for myself. Now, years later, I will read good books for their beauty. I'll spend the money I've earned to buy the books so I can read them. And I'm willing to risk the good opinion of others because a 37-year-old man doesn't often admit they like Jane Austen books. <laughs> What I once did out of duty, I now enjoy to do out of beauty. And that's how it works for us in dying to ourselves. If you try to muster up the motivation to do it on your own, you might succeed for a while. But at some level, it will always be self-serving and it will be done out of duty. Now, some people are critical of Elaine Scarry's book because they think it's not possible that a beautiful landscape will lead to justice and being just. And it's a fair question whether all beauty will result in true justice, but beauty that is rich enough, that is deep enough, just might free us to die to ourselves. When Jesus said that he was about to be lifted up and he would draw all people to himself, That would be an act beautiful enough to change our motivations. He became the first seed to die so that we might live and bear fruit. And now we die to ourselves, not out of duty, but in response to the beauty of the one who died for us. I started with the story about Domingo and Irene Garcia, who have cared for 32 children over their 40 years. And their story is compelling. It's motivating. And you might even leave here having heard it, guilty enough or inspired enough to try for duty's sake to do something similar. Something that they have done for beauty's sake. See, what I've not told you yet is how their story began. They got married as rebellious teenagers. They were pregnant and both 16 years old. Domingo was an angry man, a terrible husband and father. He drank much and he loved little. It was a toxic home for him and Irene to be living in. She grew to hate her husband. She prayed that he would die. She daydreamed that he would drive off a cliff. Their life and their marriage had reached a breaking point. And as Domingo explains it, it all hit him like a ton of bricks. He was trapped in this downward spiral from generation to generation of abuse and neglect, and he was helpless to do anything about it. And he came to a point where he said, I don't want this. I want to get out of here. I want a change. He knew he couldn't do it on his own, and so he prayed to God. And at that point, he didn't know the words even to pray, but he repented of his sin, and he asked God to restore him and to restore his family. He came to see the beauty of God's forgiveness, and it was the seed of Christ's death that brought him life, that changed his marriage. And now, decades later, they have continued to embrace this death-to-life paradigm which they have received from Christ as they've produced fruit in the lives of 32 young souls. 
The paradigm of the Christian life follows the pattern of Jesus' fruit-producing death. Duty will not free you to embrace this paradigm, but the beauty of the cross will. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond. 